Good morning, brothers and sisters. Please take your Bibles and open with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Today we are in verses 4 through 12. And as you're turning there, just a word about this text. As I was preparing uh, this sermon, I was reminded by many commentators concerning this text that many theologians, many commentators consider the text that we're looking at today the most difficult and debated passage in the entire New Testament. Ready to preach this one, right? I've actually already gotten text messages from some of you. Um, What really does this text mean? Well, we'll dive into it today. If you would, pray for this preacher this morning that I'll be able to communicate the the truth of God to you this morning in a way that's understandable in in this uh, much debated yet biblical biblical text. This is Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. I invite you, if you're able, please stand and honor the reading of the Word of God. The Lord Jesus once said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they crucify once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have a full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Friends, the grass will wither, the flowers will fade, but the word of our God it stands forever. Pray with me, please. God, as we enter into this time of the reading and preaching and the explanation of thy holy word, God, we pray that you would remove every distraction that might be in our minds or our hearts, the issues of the day or the week, that we might focus upon your word. God, I pray that you would enable me through your spirit to preach this with clarity, to preach the truth of your, of your word, Father. Let us learn of you, Father. Uh, Open our ears to hear, we pray. Uh, May the lost come to know you today. May um, the believer be encouraged in his or her faith. But Lord, if there is one amongst us today that is pretending, that is pretending to be a believer yet doesn't really know you, may this text burn within their hearts and minds that they might come to know you as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Friends, please be seated. Perseverance. Now, what does that word mean? Perseverance. Perseverance is simply...
continuing to do something even when it gets hard or when it gets difficult. You know, if you're an athlete, I'm sure there's been a time where you've had to persevere. Maybe you're running a race that's five miles and you're worn out in the fourth mile. But you're like, even though this is difficult, I'm going to press on. I'm going to finish that race. I'm going to persevere to the end. Or maybe you have a boss that's just hard to deal with. Or a work environment where you're under so much pressure to make this sale by this certain time. But you keep on keeping on. You persevere therein to the end, making that sale. And, you know, even in relationships, even in marriage, we need perseverance. Sometimes the relationships can be difficult and hard. And instead of giving up on it, we're like, you know, we're all in. We're going to persevere to the end. Well, friends, what does perseverance mean spiritually in your, in your spiritual life with the Lord? It simply means that true believers will remain and they will stay with Christ even when times get tough. You see, the Bible says that true believers, we abide, we stay with Jesus. We don't leave Him when times are tough. We don't walk away from our faith. Rather, we persevere to the end. In fact, that's what Jesus means when He says in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You know, when we think about the Bible and, and an example of perseverance, we think about people like the Apostle Paul. You know, before he was called the Apostle Paul, who was he? Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He was one who would go around chasing down Christians and persecuting them for their faith. In fact, on his way to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to persecute Christians, and the Lord Jesus appeared to him. Threw him off his horse. A great light appeared in, in his eyes. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And his response was, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou art persecuting. And we know that on that day, his life was changed. His heart was changed. And he began to follow Christ. His name changed from Saul to Paul. And he went from Saul the persecutor to Paul the preacher. And he went on three missionary journeys. We read all about this in the book of Acts. And we read the many trials and tribulations that he had while serving Jesus. He suffered greatly for Jesus. In fact, he writes about this. Let's put the text on the screen and read it together. Paul describes his suffering for Jesus. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety from all the churches. Think about that. Think about going through something like that and not abandoning it. 
You see, Paul stayed the course. Even when it was difficult to follow Jesus, he never fell away. He finished the race, stayed the course, he persevered. In fact, right before he died, he wrote these words to young Timothy. We'll put them on the screen. It says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. But listen closely. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Friends, this, this is perseverance. But if this is perseverance, what's the opposite of perseverance? If perseverance is staying the course, the opposite would be falling away from the course, wouldn't it? We'll, we'll put this on the screen, this chart on the screen. If perseverance is abiding with Christ then the opposite is falling away or walking away from Christ. If perseverance is staying with Christ, falling away is leaving Christ. If perseverance is remaining with Christ, falling away, the opposite is abandoning Christ. You remember last week, we we started this discussion, this third warning here in Hebrews, and we talked about A couple examples of people in the Bible who fell away, who walked away from Jesus. We we remember Judas, didn't we? The guy that followed Jesus so closely for three years, yet he fell away from his faith, abandoning Christ. We talked about Lot's wife. She had all the benefits of the covenant community, yet she fell away. We looked at Jesus' illustration of the sower and the seed. We remember that rocky soil where the shoot sprang up immediately, but then the sun came out, right? The wind started to blow, and that shoot was blown away. And what the author of Hebrews taught us last week is continuing to teach us today is a warning, and it's the warning of apostasy and friends i want you to know that the text we're reading today continues that warning continues this warning of apostasy and today we really learn what it means to fall away and what it means to persevere you look at the back of your bulletin our sermon has three points this morning First of all, we're going to look at apostasy. We're going to review what is that? What does that mean? Apostasy. But then this text teaches us what it means to fall away and then what it means to persevere. But let's zoom back in. Let's zoom into that point about apostasy. Let's review that word, apostasy. What does that mean? You know, last week we called it the pink elephant in the room, right? The, you know, the pink elephant is the topic that is there and everyone notices it, but you really don't want to talk about it, right? Because maybe it's unpleasant to talk about. But last week we introduced this idea of apostasy and, and we said, instead of avoiding this pink elephant, we're going to go right at it because that's what the Bible does. So let's remember the definition of apostasy. This is from Dr. Kruger at RTS. What an apostate is, 
Someone who seemed to be a believer was part of Christ's visible church, participated in the community of faith, and then later rejects Christ, turns away from sound teaching and leaves the church. And last week, we learned two very specific things about apostasy. First of all, we learned that apostates are very hard to identify because they blend in. They blend in. Apostates act and talk like Christians, yet they're not true believers. We remember Judas. And again, you got to put your mind this way. You know, if the event of Judas happens here, you know, there's the before the event and the after the event of Judas. And we're on the after side, right? We look back at the story of Judas and the first you know, the thing that comes into our minds when we hear the word Judas is that's a betrayer, right? That's the guy who turned his back on Jesus. Because we live after the fact. We, we know what happened. We know the end of the story. But think about the beginning of the story. Before he betrayed Jesus, those disciples in the upper room, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they had no idea who it was. No clue. The 11 didn't say, oh, it's Judas. We know it's Judas. They said, is it me? Is it, is, it, is it me? They had no idea. You see, they had no idea because Judas blended in. He looked like the rest of them. They couldn't figure it out. And that's the thing about apostasy. The false believer can sometimes look like the real believer. We remember also Lot's wife, right? Lot's wife had all the benefits of the covenant community. You could say she was the church member who sat on the pew for years and years, even having Abraham and her family and all the benefits of the covenant. And she looked at or looked like a believer. She blended in. But her heart was far from God. That's why Jesus says in the New Testament, remember. Lot's wife. So we learn they're hard to identify because they blend in, but we also learn that apostates are inside the church, not outside. They're inside the church. They can even be in the inner circle, like the 12 disciples, or maybe in our case, like the session, or the diaconate, or the staff. They're members of the church, but after time passes, the Bible says, they, they fall away. They transition from being inside to outside the church. And just like the shoot that sprang up from rocky soil, they blow away. Okay, so come with me for a moment. Take a step out of this text. We're, we're going to do a little theology lesson. And, and learn some terms about what all this means. Have you ever heard the term invisible church and visible church? You're like, is this a church you can't see? What is this? Let's talk about those terms, because these terms come down through church history. Let's talk about what's called the invisible church and the visible church. What is the invisible church? When we refer to the invisible church, we're talking about all true believers from the past from the present, and even the future. All those who really know the Lord. Okay? 
But let's go to this next category, the visible church. The visible church are all people who profess they are Christians and their children. So, for instance, if you want to join Church of the Redeemer, you'll stand here in the spot, you'll answer five questions, and you're saying, yes, I am part of the visible church. But we know that not everyone who stands, even in this spot or in any other church for that matter, who stands and says, I'm a believer, really and truly is. We can't see their hearts. We can't fully interpret their hearts. Many are believers. Yet there are many from that group, the Bible says, who aren't believers. So the visible church includes those who are truly Christians, but it also includes maybe some people who are faking it. So what we learn is that there is a way to appear like you are on the inside of the church, but you're really on the outside. Or to say it this way, there are many who are listed on the church roll, but they aren't listed in the Lamb's book of life. Many have the appearance of life with Jesus, but really have none. In fact, the author of Hebrews talked about this at length in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews. He reminded us of the story of the Exodus. We'll put this text on the screen. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt, led by Moses? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So what the author is doing, of Hebrews is doing, he's saying, think back with me about Israel, the children of God who were led out of Egypt, and think about how many of them were associated with the visible people of God, yet they were cut off from the land because of their unbelief. And think with me about all the benefits and privileges that these people had. Let's do that for a moment. Let's talk about what are the privileges that the Israelites had when they came out of Egypt, headed to the promised land. Did they not witness ten plagues? Did they not witness God sending the angel of death for the Passover? And when they put the blood of the lamb on their door, God passed over them, yet those who didn't have the blood, God took their first child. Did they not experience walking out of Egypt with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night? Did they not witness God opening the Red Sea, walking across that, and then looking back and God crashing it down on the Egyptians? Did they not see God provide water from a rock did they not see God provide bread coming down from heaven and they ate that bread from heaven? Did they not experience the quail that God brought them? Yet in the face of all of those privileges, with all of that evidence right in front of them, many of them did not believe. They appeared to believe 
But some of them outright did not believe and they fell away from God. And the Bible says they were cut off from the promised land. Even though they seemed to be members of the visible church, they were really faking it. Their hearts were on the outside. They didn't believe. They didn't persevere. And God cut them off. They fell away. Friends, what does this teach us? First of all, it teaches us evidence is not the problem. Unbelief is the problem. Israel had all the evidence in the world, yet they didn't believe. Only the regenerating power of an almighty God can change the heart. Evidence won't change the heart. Here's what Jesus said. Think about this. Jesus said, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Indeed, did not Jesus rise from the dead? Yet, People do not believe. Evidence is not the problem. And we also learn privileges can't save you. We just talked about all the privileges that Israel had. Evidence. Privileges that they got to see the work of God fully displayed. But those privileges can't save them. And friends, for you and I, our privileges can't save us. I want you to know, you can be in church your entire life and not be saved. You can have the privileges of preaching and teaching. You can have the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper and being baptized. You can have the privilege of going to Sunday school, a great youth group, a great children's ministry, a great women's retreat, a great missions conference, and still not be saved. That's what the Bible is teaching us. Because blending in is not the same as believing. Well, friends, that's a review. That's a review of what apostasy is. So let's now move to this second point. What does it mean to fall away? So a moment ago, I told you that I'm preaching what many call the most difficult and debated text in the New Testament. Well, why is that? Because if you read verses 4 through 8 of this text, many people say, I read that, Pastor Adam, and it sounds like a believer who loses his salvation. Are you telling me, Pastor Adam, that, that you can lose your salvation, that you can really be a believer and lose your salvation? I'm not saying that at all. I don't believe that's what the Bible is saying. Friends, I believe what the Bible is talking about here is not a true believer who loses his or her salvation. It's talking about an apostate. Someone who seems or appears to have salvation, but he or she falls away from his or her false faith. Should it be surprising that it sounds like a believer? Not at all. Because that's what blending in does. You can't tell one from the other. That's why it's so confusing for people. But friends, let's walk through this text. And let's walk through it bit by bit, going through what I believe the author is trying to tell us biblically. And again, I believe the Bible here is talking about apostasy. Someone just like Judas, who appears to be a believer but isn't. 
but ultimately falls away from his fake faith. Just like those Israelites, the author of Hebrews says that the apostate has many privileges that he rejects. You can see on your outline, on your bulletin, there's four. The author lists four privileges that are rejected by the apostate. Verse 4 says, first one is, they've once been enlightened. Once been enlightened. Not regenerated, but enlightened. Enlightened simply means to have an awareness of something or to receive the knowledge of God's truth. It doesn't mean born again, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. It doesn't mean regenerated, having a new heart. It means that you're simply enlightened. Let's think about this for a second. Didn't Judas have full knowledge of Jesus' truth and reject it? Yes. Didn't Lot's wife have awareness of the covenant promises and reject it? Yes. Didn't all those Israelites have so much evidence of the knowledge of God and yet reject it? Yes. All three of those groups were enlightened. They had awareness of what God was doing, but they rejected it and they fell away from their fake faith. Number two, they tasted the heavenly gift. Many commentators don't know what to do with that phrase. They're not sure what that means. Maybe in the Old Testament sense, it's talking about the manna. Didn't they taste the gift that came down from heaven? He had just talked about that in Hebrews 3 and 4. In a New Testament sense, maybe they're talking about the Lord's Supper, tasting the heavenly gift, the bread, the juice that is poured out. We can clearly say that this is talking about a blessing of the covenant community that has been rejected. They tasted the heavenly gift and rejected it. Thirdly, they shared in the Holy Spirit. You say that. Say, Pastor Adam, if you're going to say Holy Spirit, this must be a Christian. You have to be talking about a Christian if they shared in the Holy Spirit. But friends, what the Bible's teaching us is that you can actually be part of the Spirit's blessing without being a Christian. Think about this. In the Old Testament, all the people who didn't believe, they still saw the power of God when they saw all those plagues, when they saw the Red Sea parted, when they ate that manna. Think about Judas. Wasn't he there and experienced the work of the Spirit even through Jesus Christ when Christ did all of those miracles, when he saw the dead raised to life, when he saw the blind man be healed, the man healed at the pool of Bethesda, the deaf were hearing It is absolutely possible to not be a believer, yet sit within the ministry of the Holy Spirit and watch things happen. That's what the Bible is saying. Even Lot's wife saw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were in the midst of the work of God. In fact, the New Testament goes this far. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 7. Jesus says there's one day there's going to be a group of people stand before Jesus and say, hey, didn't we do this or that in your name? In other words, weren't we associated with the works of the Spirit? 
And Jesus is going to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many right works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a great quote here from Dr. Kruger. He says, you can be wrapped up in a community filled with the Spirit, even if you're not filled by the Spirit. And then fourth and finally, he says, the apostate tasted the goodness of the Word of God and that he rejected it. And y'all, this is where it hits home. I'm going to step on some toes. I know I've stepped on some already. But I really think it's the Lord stepping on toes. It's it's not me. I'm just preaching the text. What this means, dear friend, is you can sit in this chair Sunday after Sunday. You can hear the Word of God taught and proclaimed and preached. And you can still reject His truth. Several years ago, probably, probably 20 years ago, I preached a sermon, and you know what the title of that sermon was? The Danger of Christian Education. And I did that in a church that had a, a Christian school and a church. Look, I'm a believer in Christian education. I send my kids to Christian school. Okay? Do you know that there's a danger in Christian education? Do you know what it is? It's having all the knowledge of the Bible, but never believing. It's exactly what Judas did. It's exactly what Lot's wife did. It's exactly what all those people in the Old Testament did when they saw the work of God with their eyes. They heard it with their ears. They experienced it with their lives. They ate the manna from heaven. They tasted the goodness of God, and they still rejected it. And the Bible teaches us that the apostate will not turn to God because Matt read it from Romans chapter 1. There comes a time in people's lives where when they put up an absolute rejection to all of these privileges, there comes a time, and Matt read it, it said it three times, God gave them up. God gave them over to their own selfishness to live lives completely apart from God. And friends, that's exactly what is happening in our nation today. And when God turns people over to their selfishness, right becomes wrong and wrong becomes right. God pulls back His hand of grace. And what we learn for the apostate is that because he or she has so many privileges, has so many opportunities to hear and listen and to obey. And when that person rejects Jesus, the Bible says there is a greater judgment that will come down on that person. Jesus declares this in Matthew 10. Look at this, these verses. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. 
this text here in Hebrews 4 says that these apostates, they're crucifying once again the Son of God. In other words, even after they've tasted the goodness of God, even after they've heard the word, they continue to mock Jesus. They continue to reject Jesus and humiliate Jesus just as he was on that cross. And you see this illustration in verses 7 and 8 of this text. You can look down at the text even as, as I'm explaining this. The Bible says the rain comes down. And when the rain comes down, it produces crops and thorns and thistles. Okay? And the illustration here of the rain coming down is the Word of God coming down, the Spirit coming down, and working amongst the people. Some people respond and believe, that's the crops, and they grow and flourish in Christ. Yet some people reject that. And they're like thorns and thistles. And the whole point of this text is, don't be a thorn. Don't be a thistle. Don't be a Judas. Don't be a Lot's wife. Don't be a Hebrew who saw the privileges, the work of God. And you say, you know what, God? Stiff arm to you. I reject you. I'm going to mock you again just like you were on the cross. Don't be that person. Because there will be a greater judgment for you. This is a warning, friends. A kind, loving warning from our God to His people. Saying, examine your heart before me. Because this is what it means to fall away. But then lastly, there's point three. Now what if I just said, hey, let's pray. Let's call it a day. It'd be some tough thing to end on, wouldn't it? You know, sometimes you've got to go down before you go up. That's exactly what the author does here. Because he's been, I mean, he's been pounding on them. I've been pounding from this pulpit. But the Bible has an encouraging, wonderful word for believers here in this third point. So good, we're going to reread it. Look at verse 9. Let's read to the end of verse 12. Though we speak in this way, in other words, I know I've been pounding, right? Though we speak in this way, here it is. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Do you see the shift? Do you see the shift in language here in verse 9? He goes, I know I'm impounding, but man, I've got an encouraging word for you. We feel sure of better things, he says. And he tells these Hebrews, he goes, look, as I look at your lives, I actually see some fruit. I see some fruit that you're really saved. He says, let's talk about three things that I see. First of all, I see your work. In other words, your labor for the love of God. I see the love you have shown for his name. I see you serving the saints. Those are the three things. The second one, he says, I see you have love for his name. 
Isn't that a vertical love from man back to God? Then he says, I see a love where you serve the saints. Isn't that a horizontal love where you serve other people? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, I see fruit in your life. I see fruit that you are seeking to love God. I see fruit that you are trying to love your neighbor as yourself. You're living out the two greatest commandments. And we remember the whole point of works. We'll put this on the screen. Works are not the root of your salvation, but they are the fruit of your salvation. In other words, your justification, my justification, it's not based on our works. It's based on what Christ did for us and faith in what Christ has done for us. But if we are truly saved, if we really have a faith in Jesus Christ, that will flow out of us in works. Not to earn our justification, but to glorify God. And he's saying, I see that vertically and horizontally in your life. So be encouraged because when I look at your life, he says, I don't see the thorns and thistles. I see some fruit, but it's a very immature fruit. Remember that from last week? You're you're still drinking milk. You should be eating meat, but I'm encouraged. I'm hopeful for you. So he says to them, keep on keeping on. He says to them, persevere. Look at the end of that text, verses 11 and 12. He says, if indeed you know Jesus, if indeed these works are really showing forth a true faith, then there's three things that you really need to be doing. First of all, he talks about having an earnestness in your faith. You see that word in verse 11? We desire each of you to show the same earnestness. What does that even mean? Having an earnestness about your faith means to take your faith seriously. If your faith is an add-on to your life or an extra to your life, you're completely missing the point. He's saying that your faith should be, taking, should be taken so seriously that you should do it in earnest, that it should be a priority that drives your life, not something added on to your life. Jesus doesn't sit on the throne of part of your heart, but he sits on the throne of all of your heart. Approach Christianity with an earnestness, with a desire of giving your whole self to the Lord, because when you take your faith seriously, that's what it means to persevere. Secondly, don't be sluggish. Don't be sluggish. I think about sometimes having to get my kids out of bed to go do something. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Or dragging someone to do something that they really don't want to do. You slug. Have you ever done that? You have this sluggish idea about doing this or that. The writer here is saying, don't be sluggish about your faith. If there's anything you shouldn't be sluggish about, it's your faith. Because as you labor in love for Christ, as you are not sluggish, you are persevering in your faith. And then finally, be patient. And that's where we go back and think about the Apostle Paul. That first example I gave you. His life wasn't a sprint. You know, 
I love watching that 100-meter dash when the Olympics come around. What a, what a fascinating race that is. But that is not the Christian life. <laughs> the Christian life is more the marathon. Okay? The patient endurance, the drive to finish. And that's what Paul is saying. Don't view it as a sprint. View it as a marathon. It is going to involve years and years. In order to have a life well spent, in order to say, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith, you're going to have to be patient and persevere through some very, very difficult times. But friend, as you're patient, I want you to know you persevere. So be earnest, take it seriously, don't be sluggish and be patient. That is what it means to persevere. So friends, as we close this sermon, things I hope we all can take away from this text this morning. We need to pay attention. We need to pay attention to this warning of apostasy. Some of you might say, Adam, I am sick and tired of you preaching these warnings. Sometimes you make a buzzer sound, Adam. I don't like that. Well, author Hebrews doesn't care if we like it or not because he's coming to us not once, not twice, six times in this book. And he's writing to Christians and he says, warning, pay attention. Don't don't just push this off. Pay attention. Friends, let me remind you that 8.3% of Jesus' top 12 were apostate. Remember, spiritual privileges can't save you. Church membership can't save you. If you're a child listening to me today, communicants class can't save you. Baptism in the Lord's Supper can't save you. A Christian upbringing like Lot's wife had, that can't save you. It is actually possible to act and speak like a Christian and not be a Christian. In fact, the Bible even just in one sermon today, teaches us that we can be enlightened by God's truth, taste the heavenly gift, share in the Holy Spirit, taste the goodness of God's Word, and still not be a believer. Remember, the rain comes down on all of us. Crops go on, grow on one side, but there's a lot of thorns and thistles in this world as well. Don't be a thistle. Don't fall away. Examine your life and don't compare it to mine or anybody around you. Look into the Word of God. Look into the face of God. Are you really, truly a believer? Is there fruit in your life? Do you not just say, oh, I love God, but do you have an earnestness and desire to love God? Does it make you excited to love God? Does it make you... Have joy to love your neighbor as yourself, not because you're earning your justification, but because you're living out a new life in Christ. If so, I encourage you, be serious about your faith. Be earnest. Don't be sluggish in your relationship with Jesus. And like Paul, be patient. Persevere, even through the hard times. Don't walk away from Christ. And I want you to know, dear friend, the arms of Jesus Christ are open wide. If you have been faking it your whole life, you can make that right today by going to him, confessing your sins, believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. And dear friend, never give up on Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus is better. He's better than anything you could ever have, anything you could ever want. Jesus is better, dear friends, so don't, don't ever give up 
on Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you for pushing us and prodding us, even as Christians, to take our faith seriously. That Christianity is not simply an add-on or a bonus, but it drives everything that we do. And Lord, there is a warning today, even for those who are not taking their faith serious enough. Oh God, forgive us for that and enable us to persevere, to not be sluggish, to run this marathon knowing that you are with us as our God, our Father, our Sustainer. And we know that he who began a good work in us will one day complete it in Christ Jesus. Let us be able to say with the Apostle Paul one day that we have fought the good fight, that we finished the course and kept the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.